0: Marty Favret rolling the dice one more time like the riverboat gambler that he is
1: using all of all of the tricks when go like empty the bag of tricks leave no, nothing left you know you can't take those home with you when it's your last season coach favret had nothing if not a bag of tricks <laughs> Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman.
0: You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman.
1: And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too.
0: There have been 50 seasons of Division Three football. We've covered it for 25 years. We've had a podcast since 2007. If we had a label on the top of our helmets that said Team Whatever, it would say Team 26 here on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. We're the only podcast directly from the folks at D3Football.com, and we're here every week, all season, because we live and breathe this stuff. I'm Patrick Coleman,
1: the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation at D3Football.com. And Pat, week three, not quite as many top 25 matchups, but doesn't mean we didn't have a lot of exciting action. We did have two ranked matchups. And I think we're going to talk about those right off the top. Yeah, we will right here in season 17, episode eight.
0: Greg, we had a game that we knew was going to be great and we knew was going to get a lot of our attention. We had a game that we figured would probably be great. And then it got flexed into a really convenient time slot. But we're going to talk first about susquehanna at Cortland, we will also talk about uw whitewater at mary harden baylor and on our fast five segment coming up in just a handful of minutes we'll be talking with tom berkovich the head coach of susquehanna his team of course improved to three and zero. but before we go any further we need to thank and recognize the sponsor of this week's podcast which is d3photography.com d3photography.com, as you might expect from the name, is a group that shoots photos of Division Three athletic events. They are people who we contract out on an annual basis. They are not part of the d3sports.com family necessarily, but people who we work with on a regular basis to cover all sorts of Division Three sports in our realm. SIDs can hire those folks as well to shoot games for them locally or away. They shot seven Photo galleries of Division Three football games on Saturday, covering 13 schools. And also, if you're interested in seeing Division Two Northern Michigan get shellacked by UW Lacrosse, you can see photos of that as well. But if you're looking for photos from, let's say, Christopher Newport or Gettysburg from this week, or St. Norbert or Wisconsin Lutheran, or River Falls, or UW Stout, or UW Lacrosse, or all the way out west, University of Puget Sound against University of Laverne. Those are seven games that they covered this week. I think I left out Gustavus Adolphus. I know they have not forgotten about me because I keep sending them copious amounts of money at the beginning of every semester. But if you look over the course of the season, Greg, just in September alone, 25 photo galleries, two more of games in August. There's lots of photos there to look at from d3photography.com.
1: Absolutely. Our partners at d3photography.com doing a lot of great work shooting games on the sidelines at division three football games you can check out their work at d3photography.com listeners to this podcast can use the promo code d3football to get 10 percent off all orders it's like you know
0: how to sponsor a podcast give them a coupon code and uh, and and they will they will come give them a coupon code and they will come thanks to d3photography.com for sponsoring this edition of the podcast you can visit them on the web at d3photography.com all right greg Cortland, susquehanna a game that seemed well in hand then
1: all of a sudden not well in hand talk us through it yeah pat this was a game that had a ton of highlights as offensively challenged as last week's susquehanna game was this game just the opposite The Riverhawks opened the game with a long, sustained touchdown drive capped by a Josh Ehrlich touchdown pass to Eddie Nugent. Cortland's answer, one play, 80-yard bomb from Zach Boys to J.J. Lapp. Boys to Lapp. By the way, one of the best quarterback-wide receiver combos in the division. They've been doing it for a couple of years now. Cortland uh, really peppered Susquehanna all game long with explosive plays. Lapp also had an 89-yard touchdown catch in the game. Cole Burgess caught touchdown passes. Of 58 and 33 yards for Cortland. That 33 yarder to Cole Burgess came at three minutes and 27 seconds left to play in the third quarter. At that point, boys had thrown for 393 yards and five touchdowns in the game. Boys would only throw two more passes in the final 18 and a half minutes of the game. Meanwhile, Susquehanna, they just kept playing. You know, they're getting peppered with big plays, long touchdowns. They just keep playing, slow and steady, chipping away at that 14-point deficit in the fourth quarter. Susquehanna gets a touchdown with 4.09 to play. After quickly forcing a Cortland punt, they score again with a minute 29 to play and tie the game at 35-35. On the ensuing kickoff, Susquehanna's Brennan Miller forces Rashad Tucker to fumble on the return. Susquehanna recovers that fumble deep in Cortland territory, set up a Christian Colaserto to knock home a 32-yard field goal as time expires. And that gives Susquehanna the improbable 38 to 35 road win over then number 10, Cortland. Here's what that game winning field goal sounded like from the
0: Cortland video broadcast 32 yards officially.
2: Everybody's eyes on the kicker.
0: Ball's down, kicks up. It is good. And the ball game is over, and Susquehanna comes from 14 points down to beat Cortland 38-35. And the ball game is
1: over.
0: Greg, you were talking about boys to lap being one of the best QB wide receiver combos in the division. I was also thinking it's got to be one of the shortest combination of names in qb to wide receiver combos and then i immediately went to plunk to ruby and i thought okay fine we got we got your nine letters here in a bunch of different ways boy another instance it seems greg in which courtland had everything in front of it and it's happened a couple times over the course of the past uh season
1: plus now Yeah, 14-point lead going into the fourth quarter there. And, you know, you get into the end game in the final five minutes and you just kind of need one or two first downs to basically run run the clock out on Susquehanna. They can't quite get it. They, you know, try to run it, you know, by the book. You run three times, run the clock, make Susquehanna use timeouts. But they could not get that first down. Uh, They end up giving up the two scores in the final five minutes. And then, you know, just the... The very unfortunate thing at the at, with the fumbling the kickoff and setting Susquehanna up uh, for what winds up being one of the wildest f- final five minutes of the afternoon. Total that up with the
0: fourth quarter against Ithaca in the Cortica Jug game last year. The second half at Randolph-Macon in the first round playoff game last year. Got got outscored in the Cortica Jug game 14-3 over that span. They got outscored at Macon 14-0. And then, of course, on Saturday, we've already talked about the number by which they
1: got outscored 17 to nothing in the fourth quarter. You know, when I talked to Coach Fitzpatrick last week for Around the Nation, the written version, we talked a little bit about Cortland's schedule. They started with Delaware Valley. They now played Susquehanna. That's a couple of ranked teams that they've played to start off. And he said, you know, there's a trend about scheduling non-conference games now with the shrinking of Pool C. Difficult to really play for that. Going forward, And so there's a trend among coaches now that you want to play games that make your team better in November. It's not necessarily about being 10 and 0 now. It's about how do I get my team to be the best they can be in November. And, you know, this is a game where I think Cortland can take that final 15 minutes, learn from it. And, you know, that's a team that can, you know, obviously you mentioned a couple of other spots where the fourth quarter got away from them you know, maybe another another building block in in learning how to close games. Conference games the rest of the way for Cortland until they finish
0: with that Cortica-Jug game against arch-rival Ithaca in Week 11. The other key matchup we were looking at, of course, between ranked teams was scheduled to kick off at 1 Eastern, and then a thunderstorm basically flexed it into a much better time slot as uh, Mary Harden-Baylor and UW-Whitewater kicked off instead at 3 local time, central time, 4 Eastern. I think, Greg, that A big win by Whitewater would have vaulted the Warhawks up the pole a bit. A big win by Mary Harden Baylor would have provided a bit of chaos. Instead, we got neither.
1: We got a game in which Mary Harden Baylor had every opportunity to win down the stretch. Yeah, they really did, Pat. After holding Whitewater to a field goal, that's a 46-yard make by Jeffrey Isatalo McGuire in the third quarter. UMHB had four more possessions in the game to try and overcome the 17 to 14 deficit. Those four possessions all crossed into war into the Warhawk half of the field, but they ended with a fumble, a punt, a fumble, and an interception. The crew offense wasn't quite able to capitalize on those chances, but I think you have to give a lot of credit to the UMHB defense here as well. That, that the offense had four chances to tie or take the lead means that the defense held the line in must-stop situations four times also. Defensively, I think we saw a much more familiar brand of Crusader football than what we've seen the last two weeks. And offensively, look, this is a group they're still trying to figure things out. They've had a quarterback change already this year. And for a guy in Isaac Faye who's getting his first two career starts against one, a very seasoned Trinity defense, and then an always exceptional Whitewater defense, I think Faye has done a really, a really good job in in his first two starts.
0: Yeah, I think he's done really well. I think team has done pretty well, all things considered, last game and a half or last,
1: game anyway and i think they're going to continue to improve over the course of the season yeah so we've got umhb they are now zero and three it's the first time that as a program they've ever been zero and three they've lost now to teams ranked fourth sixth and seventh in our current top 25 pat are they are they still top 25 to you and how are you rating their chances to qualify for the postseason well let's go to the mailbag your categories have become tiresome
0: got mail
1: there's
0: a very similar question from rambo's carving knife of course where all the really intelligent questions come from a carving knife from an action hero from the 80s or at pritzker's gunt asking what is your opinion of an 0-3 team being in the top 25 i don't have a problem with an 0-3 team being in the top 25 with the resume that greg just mentioned right They've lost to number four, to number six, and to number seven. So, you know, the highest they could possibly be is number eight. Now, obviously, they were not competitive in a couple of those games, and then they were competitive on Saturday. I'll be honest with you. There have been so many instances over the course of the past, however many years. How much have you and I talked about this, Greg, where a team that's in the top 10 just blows the doors off of somebody who's deep down, middling down in the top 25? So if you're talking about, You know, where they are ranked right now, this week, where they are at ranked as number 23 in the country, there's not any evidence to dispute that. There are plenty of uh, teams that have been ranked in this area before who have not performed well against teams in the top seven in the country. And I don't think there's any difference in that right now. Obviously, their chances to qualify the postseason are going to rely entirely now on winning the conference championship. And that means getting past Harden Simmons and everybody else in the conference I will wait one more week before maybe making that judgment even as an initial judgment and then of course that game doesn't even get played until week nine so I'll see Harden Simmons on Friday at Endicott maybe I'll feel a little more then about it but there's a lot of football to be played in between before that big showdown shows up and then after Harden Simmons they finish with the game at Howard Payne at the end of the regular season, that's also
1: looking likely to be a big game. There's a long way
0: to go before Mary Harden Baylor plays those really key games.
1: I think really it's important to let Isaac Faye and that offense have four more games to really settle in and fine tune uh, what they're doing. Like you said, they've you've, you've seen pretty significant improvement in a pretty short period of time with that team from where they were in river falls to where they ended against whitewater on Saturday. So uh, trending in the right direction for sure. Obviously path to the playoffs now runs straight through the ASC automatic qualifier.
0: I'll be interested to see where Mary Harden Baylor ends up in the AFCA poll. If they get any votes at all, that poll comes out this week on Monday for the first time, or at least that's how it's traditionally been done in the past after the first three weeks of games. And that voting body generally does not pay much attention to things beyond one loss record i know we have at least one of those voters on our panel i did not go pull that guy's ballot to see if uh if, if he voted for mary hardy baylor but i'll be interested to see where that ends up
2: see you all met you all met you all
0: met tom perkovich head coach susquehanna his team three and joining us on fast five coach congratulations it's been a fun ride for you guys so far. Obviously.
2: All right. Uh, There's no doubt about that, but I appreciate you
0: having me. All right, Coach. When we talked back in May, and for people who keep track and want to know the number, that is podcast 329. uh, You were kind of holding out on us a little bit about your uh, about your quarterback, your FCS quarterback, your transfer seems to be uh, doing a great job for you guys. Tell us a little bit more about him now.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's only three games into playing uh, college football. I mean, obviously, he played at Marist, didn't perform in any games, but. He's definitely uh, a dual threat kid. I think he's given at least a couple people, and especially you know this past weekend, uh, some fits with his feet, being able to extend plays. And we hope he can get better reading the pass game. There's been some ups and downs there, uh, which forced him to run. But um, we got to continue to protect him better too. And but his ability to extend the play has been fun to watch. And uh, I think you know him and Kyle House are starting to get hooked up pretty good. And He's starting to just know the offense more and more, and hopefully we can continue to progress him and keep competition on him with our other guys and uh, continue to to move the ball forward.
0: In watching that fourth quarter on Saturday, um, every time you guys got the ball, it seemed like right away he was making this big play with his feet to start the drive, and that had to be, I would think, had to be demoralizing for Cortland.
2: They they threw everything at us, right? The, you know, a couple pressures here and there, and then you know some four man stuff, and they spied him on the on the on the pick, and tried to give him a lot of different looks. And um, but yeah, he was able to get out, and especially on the last couple, like you, had, you said, those those last couple drives, just being able to um, get the ball down in you know deep into the red zone, and then we were able to finish. And his ability to do that really um, opens up the offense a bit.
0: It's a. Really big transition between week two, winning six to five on, you know, in one of the most crazy scores and one of the craziest ways imaginable to then going up to Cortland and winning in their house. What did a switch flip? What was practice like? How did that change for you guys?
2: We had some injuries going into Brockport, especially up front offensively, and and that you know I think that played a, a role, but to a point we just we just didn't execute you know what we needed to our game plan very well, and uh, the kids understood it. They you know they felt at least offensively we in our defense bailed us out, and. Uh, you know we we're able to make a couple plays but you know we need to be better and we told them we need to be better and their preparation was was very good um very attentive uh very locked in you know the effort in practice the competition in practice was um at the level it needs to be you know uh when you're playing a, a team of the caliber of Cortland, and um you know, our guys stuck with the plan and we were able to to handle the obviously the ending and no, but I think, as I said to them after, I think that started in practice with the way we were prepared. So we need to continue that going forward. Talk a, to us a little bit about
0: defensively the effort on Saturday. I mean, you guys only got to Zach Boys for two sacks. That's a lot of sacks against that guy. One of them came in a real key spot. Just tell what it's like trying to contain a guy who's you know pretty mobile himself.
2: Yeah, I mean their offense as a whole is is a problem to defend. They just have so much firepower. Uh, you know, starting with Zach and and. The receiving quarters might be the best we've seen in my time here. we would probably go up against some of the Hopkins crews. But, you know, and then the running backs, just outstanding in so many ways, right? I was very uh, proud of our guys. Coach really put together a really good plan to to slow their offense down. And Pat's a great defensive coordinator. Kids really rally around him and, and believe in what we do. And even though we've given up some really big plays, you know, our guys kind of stepped up in the fourth the field position game was huge, right? The uh, the two drives inside the 15, and our guys came up with uh, stops in the run game, and then that big sack by Jake Schultes was was a game changer. Uh, played the field position late in the game and, and gave us a, a chance again, you know, as they did the week before, uh, to win the game on offense there. So it was really proud of them on, on the overall part of sticking with it.
0: Running out of time on the fast five, so give me your five-second assessment of Kyle House so far this year.
2: Yeah, he's a dynamic player, obviously return game and uh and uh receiving. We're trying to figure out a million ways to get him the ball, get our quarterback to see when he's when he's matched up and we, we were able to do that pretty well. I think it was nine or ten catches that you know yesterday, a big touchdown. He and Michael Roosh last year had obviously a pretty good connection and he's building that along with uh, Josh right now. And he's he's a really special player for us and, and um a problem for opponents. We gotta continue to do our job to try to keep him involved and figure out, you know, ways to get him going because he's a, he's a game changer.
1: Perkovich told you that Cortland is really good. Also really good is Susquehanna, right? They've gone up to New York two weeks in a row and they've competed hard in two very different kinds of football games to get a pair of huge region two wins. They've got one more non-conference game before landmark play begins. But if this team continues to iron out the wrinkles offensively, they can be a very, very good team in the postseason. We're very thankful for our sponsors
0: on this podcast. We're also very thankful for the people who support d3football.com, support d3sports.com, and those are the people who support us on Patreon. Patreon is a service by which you can support people who create content, people who create art, people who do all sorts of things, and the people who support us do so on Patreon on a monthly basis, anywhere from $3 a month up to $50 a month. And in return, they get our undying thanks, a little of extra behind-the-scenes bonus content at times. And we get the benefit of having a regular steady stream of income that we can rely on, whether it's in September when the regular ad revenues are ramping up or
1: in June when they're basically non-existent. That's right, Pat. Our Patreon subscribers help fuel all of the D3Sports.com family of sites. But during football season... We really see that support manifested in the regular cycle of coverage that our readers see throughout each and every week, features columns around the nation quarterback week this week, on-site coverage on Saturdays, the live scoreboard on game day, all of these things are made possible by our Patreon supporters. If you enjoy D3Football.com and all of the coverage the site provides, consider joining our group of Patreon subscribers or support the site with a one-time donation. Maybe you're already a Patreon subscriber. If so, thank you so much. You can continue to support D3Football.com by spreading the word to your fellow fans at your next home game. Talked about
0: quarterback week. I have sketched out on my schedule a list of features for defense week. Do not worry. We have not forgotten about the other 21 positions on the field, but you can join us at Patreon by going to Patreon.com D3Sports or for a one-time donation, as Greg mentioned, that you can find at D3Sports.com help.
2: Game ball. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game
0: balls. It's time for game balls. And my game ball this week goes to Franco Marshall linebacker Matt Scully. Scully recovered a fumble midway through the second quarter. He made a touchdown saving tackle in Franco Marshall territory on the far sideline in the third quarter, helping preserve the lead. He forced a fumble at the FNM two-yard line in the fourth quarter, shared a tackle at the one on third down on a drive where Montclair state came up empty. They went for it on fourth down and goal and they got stopped. He got the interception for FM in Montclair state's overtime possession. Looked like it was a pretty athletic play, but Montclair state's AI driven camera wasn't really intelligent enough to show that to us. So I'm, I'm making an assumption here. However, Scully ended up the day with a team high nine tackles, seven of them solo stops, two of them tackles for loss. And then the pick, The fumble recovery, the forced fumble, and Franklin and Marshall won 31-25 to in overtime. Also, hat tip on this to Ira Thor. He was doing the public address announcing for Montclair, giving us the insight on Scully's exploits. That's my game ball.
1: My game ball goes to Hope running back Chance Strickland. In a seesaw game with Mount St. Joseph and trailing 35-34 to late in the fourth quarter, the Flying Dutchman blocked a Mount St. Joseph punt to set the offense up with great field position at the Lion 25. From this point on, Hope left everything to Chance. Strickland carried the ball on seven straight snaps, the last of which ended with Strickland in the end zone for his third rushing touchdown of the game. The score gave Hope a 40-35 win. Strickland finished with 23 carries for 85 yards and three touchdowns, and for his solo performance on the game-winning drive, Chance Strickland gets my game ball.
0: You and I share a script, right? It's it's all written down in a shared document so that we know what we're saying going back and forth. But I did not pick up on your deft use of left everything to chance there until you said it. Excellent. And what a fun game. What a fun finish that was between Mount St. Joseph and Hope up in Holland, Michigan on Saturday.
1: Yeah, big week for the MIAA and the MIAA-HCAC crossovers. Uh, six and one, I believe, for the MIAA this weekend. That is a lot of initials right there. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat.
0: My stat of the week. First off, out of 116 games this past weekend, only 81 of the box scores were uploaded at the time I was writing this on Sunday afternoon. If your school is waiting until Monday to do this, you're missing out on being included here you're missing out on being better included in our Saturday daily wrap-up stories. But my stat of the week comes from Lake forest where the foresters beat Cornell college 41 to seven in that game. The lake forest defense gave up one touchdown, but it scored a touchdown as well. Yeah. Defense scoring a touchdown, right? That's not all that unusual. My stat is more a cumulative one. And that is that the lake forest defense through three games has scored more points than it is allowed. Three touchdowns for the Forester D compared to two touchdowns allowed this week. It was a pick six for Javon
1: Aquin that kept the defense ahead of pace. And that's my stat of the week. Teal first-year quarterback Joseph Fell had a hand in all three Tomcat touchdowns on Saturday, which is not my stat. Senior defensive back Donnell Thomas had two interceptions in the 22-14 Tomcat win over Bethany, which is also not my stat. My stat of the week is 2,149, as in 2,149 days between home wins for Teal. Saturday's win at Alumni Field was the first for Teal since October 29, 2016, snapping a 27-game home losing streak. It got pretty emotional in the Teal broadcast booth as the Tomcats went into victory formation, and then the crowd of fans around the team as they rang the victory bell for the first time after a home win. Six years in the making! 2,149 days, you can push that to zero. Since the last time the Tomcats have won a game here at Alumni Stadium. This place is on the verge of eruption in about 20 seconds. Morantis has one more kneel down. Under center. And ladies and gentlemen, G Vegas will be partying tonight. 22 to 14. Tomcats take it over the Bethany Bison and snap the home losing streak.
0: The Tomcats have not gotten to ring the victory
1: bell outside of Alumni Stadium in six years. The The first time many of those fans have experienced that particular post-game revelry. Really cool scenes at the end of the game there at Teal. Congratulations to the Tomcats.
0: I'm not going to do the whole pronunciation 101 bit, but yes, that is how you pronounce Teal. It might be spelled T-H-I-E-L, but that's how you pronounce Teal. And indeed, Teal is looking like it's a long way away from that 2019 Coke commercial.
1: (laughs) We
0: go region by region, and we're starting with region one. Talking about who's getting it done in the one, I'm a real wild one, and getting it done in the one somehow, some way was William Patterson on Saturday. The Pioneers managed to get past McDaniel 35 to 14, 35 points on just 143 yards of total offense, including minus 10 rushing yards. That's because Patterson scored on a 65 yard fumble return by defensive lineman Yubir Rojas Herrera. An 89-yard kickoff return by Nafi Finney and a 25-yard pick six by Devin Blunt. And of the 143 yards, well, Taz Burton got most of it, the vast majority of it, actually. 118 yards on two plays. Each of them were third-quarter touchdown catches. Greg, William Patterson won this without a single sustained scoring drive or really any drive of any kind. They got four first downs on the afternoon. They went three and out nine times, uh, including one drive that ended in a fumble. So the stats might make you think otherwise, but the result on the scoreboard is a 35-14 win for William Patterson.
1: Take him any way you can get him. Winning is hard. Norwich got it done in the one with a 28-14 win over Castleton. The cadets got a 100-yard rushing day from Justin Bryant, while the defense intercepted Castleton three times on the afternoon. Ethan Amburn's 36-yard pick, six with under three minutes to play, sealed the win for Norwich, their sixth consecutive win for the Maple Sap Bucket.
0: I feel like the Maple Sap Bucket is a rivalry game I need to get to sometime. Sounds pretty sweet. It's it's a,
1: it's a, it's a Pat who's feeling blue in the 2?
0: Well, Hartwick has to be feeling blue, not just looking royal blue and white after losing Saturday at Juniata by a 31 to 21 score. Meanwhile, Juniata goes from feeling blue to just looking blue and old gold as the Eagles broke a 17 game overall losing streak with the victory. Last win for the Eagles was October 2nd, 2021 against Moravian. And this game on Saturday, this is one of those games that wouldn't have even been possible without Juniata leaving the Centennial Conference for football and opening up a few non-conference opportunities. Juniata was pretty good in previous decades, but they've had just one winning season since 1999. And in that stretch, They've had seven one-win seasons and four winless ones, but they're not the ones feeling blue in the two.
1: Westminster is also feeling blue in the two following a 48-3 defeat at Washington and Jefferson on Saturday. The Titans turned the ball over four times in the contest. This series has been very competitive recently with each of the last six games decided by a touchdown or less. The Titans are now one and two on the season and with head-to-head losses already to Grove City, And now W&J, Westminster's path to the pack title may already be closed.
0: Kudos for picking someone else who is feeling blue and wearing blue.
1: Pat, who's running free in the three? three
0: Running free in the three. Were you surprised to see a 300-pound defensive lineman running free on Saturday? Oh, yeah, this is going to be good. That was in the three where Bridgewater's Preston Turner took the direct snap as an up man in punt formation. He was gone, untouched. 71 yards for a touchdown against North Carolina Wesleyan I mean perhaps this should not have been a surprise this is the guy who still holds as far as I know still holds the Virginia high school league record for most touchdowns in a game with nine a game in which he went for 448 yards on 18 carries for Chatham high school against James River you should definitely see this and you can find the video clip on Bridgewater's x account but here's what it sounded like nope Snap goes to one of the up men. First down and much, much more. The big man's rumbling. He's to the 50, pushes a blocker ahead. Still on his feet at the 20, to the 10, five. Touchdown Bridgewater, it's Preston Turner. The defensive end out of Blair's Virginia rumbles all the way into the end zone. 71 yards.
1: Last season, Maryville opened up their season 0-3, but rallied in the last half to finish 5-5 overall. The Scots have not lost that late season momentum and are out to a 3 0 start following Saturday's 27 20 win at Shenandoah. Maryville's defense stood tall in this game, limiting the Hornets to just one of 10 on third downs. Shenandoah was only able to run 47 offensive plays in the game. Bryson Rollins was a very tidy 26 of 31 for 235 yards and two touchdowns in the win. Maryville opens USA South play against Brevard next week. Greg, what's the score in the four? Thirty to seven was the score in the Cuyahoga Gold Bowl in favor of the visiting John Carroll Blue Streaks. Baldwin Wallace jumped ahead seven to zero in the first quarter, but it was all John Carroll after that. Following Baldwin Wallace's touchdown, their final ten possessions ended in eight punts and two turnovers on downs. The Blue Streaks really in total control in this game, and they open OAC play with a win. Joe Collins, 23 of t- 33 with 302 yards and two passing touchdowns in the win. Gold Bull stays in University Heights. I'm going to stay in the OAC
0: myself for my game to spotlight in the four where you'd think maybe Mount Union was also somehow playing Baldwin Wallace. Purple Raiders have often had close, low-scoring games against the Yellow Jackets, but Mount Union's 28-0 win on Saturday was against Marietta, where Marietta held Mount Union scoreless in the second half in part by sacking Braxton punk three times and picking him off once after halftime twice for the game. The most charitable interpretation of it is this, and I'm going to go with this Mount union intentionally keeping some offensive weapons well under wraps with the intent of busting them out. You know, Greg McKayley style against John Carroll or in the national quarterfinals in case of close game, break glass shout out to Marietta's chance night. He had two of Marietta's four sacks and two of their seven tackles for loss, but Bigger shout out to Rossi Moore, who had six tackles for loss and four sacks by himself for Mount Union. Also, shout out to that aforementioned plunk to Ruby combination. Ruby now the all-time leading receiver in Mount Union history in terms of receiving yards. I believe the number was 4,706, which is several miles.
1: A lot of really great wide receivers at Mount Union. So that record, uh, pretty big deal. Congratulations to Wayne Ruby. Pat, who's looking alive in the five?
0: five. Well, St. Norbert is definitely looking alive in the five after the Green Knights finished on top after a crazy fourth quarter against Wisconsin Lutheran on Saturday, winning 37 to 32. You wouldn't think that this game entered the fourth quarter with a score of 18 to 13, but uh, that is what it did. And uh, St. Norbert increased it to 25, 13, 70 seconds into the quarter. The teams traded touchdowns to make it 31 20. And then we get actual two defensive stops, but Wisconsin Lutheran goes 50 yards to cut the lead to 31 26 with 52 seconds left. And then they get the onside kick recovery score again on a 38 yard touchdown catch. Just nine seconds later, one play 38 yards, nine seconds. That's your drive stats from your public address announcer. You'd think that was it. And that in and of itself is a pretty great story, but then St. Norbert came back and Peyton Lyon hit Paul Begainis with a 47 yard pass in double coverage with 13 seconds left to win the game 37 32. At a game that featured six fourth quarter touchdowns, three in the final minute within 39 seconds of each other. Green Knights 2 1, 1 0 in the net.
1: Coe is still alive in the five after a 19 11 weather delayed win at Central. The Cohawks leveraged four interceptions of Central quarterbacks to notch a key road win. In American Rivers Conference play, that win over Central positions Co as the main challenger to Wartburg for ARC supremacy. The Cohawks they'll be at Wartburg in two weeks.
0: Co under head coach Tyler Staker. Last time they made the playoffs was under his dad Steve Staker, and then Greg put you on the spot really quickly and easily. Who was the previous head coach at Co?
1: I believe that was Eric Rayburn. <laughs>
0: That's correct. Eric Rayburn. I gave you a softball right there. All right.
1: Who's in the mix in the six? Six feet, six, six feet,
2: six feet, six, six feet.
1: Claremont Mudscripts had to scratch, claw, and kick their way to a 16 7 win over George Fox on Saturday. The Stags lost Justin Edwards to an apparent injury just before halftime, as well as a quarterback change to find just enough offense to get this win. Backup quarterback Walter Kuhlenkamp had a highlight reel 67-yard touchdown run in the third quarter to get the score tied at 7-7. Then after missing a 31-yard field goal with one minute and 30 seconds to play, the Stags managed to quickly force a George Fox punt. Coolencamp connected on three of four passes in that final drive to set up a 47-yard Rich Bruto field goal to go ahead 10-7. I thought the game was over here. So did everybody else at Zinda Field. But the game officials came together. They put one second on the clock. George Fox initiated lateral protocol on the ensuing kickoff. The first lateral was intercepted by CMS's Calvin Miller, who went ahead and ran that thing in for the exclamation point to end the game, sixteen to seven. They're going to have to throw the ball as far as they can, or perhaps uh, start ladder. Come up with something else. Initiating lateral protocol. He rad- ladders it to Curry. Laterals it again, now on the lateral. And now the lateral to Thompson. And he laterals it back to Maddox on the other side. Now he laterals it to Curry. Thompson now laterals it back to Curry. He's going to lateral it. It's a lateral.
0: See if they can get some laterals here. And it is picked up. laterals failed i would like to see stats greg on how many times lateral protocol actually ends up in a touchdown for the other team we know how many times it has ended up in a touchdown for the team actually executing it in division three all right losing justin edwards that's a big deal man that's a big part of that uh, team's offense maybe the super majority part of that offense
1: yeah he's been the workhorse for them for the last two seasons uh reviewed the tape to see what happened looked like he got Popped pretty good in the side, uh, stayed in for another play and then came out uh, just before halftime and then we didn't see him again. So, you know, don't want to speculate on what happened to Justin Edwards there and and hopefully he'll be good to go for Skyak play. I appreciate it. You could have been at that game and the
0: Pacific Pomona-Pitzer game, uh, but you were very helpful, shall we say, in keeping the scoreboard updated on Saturday. So thank you for taking one for the team there. UW Oshkosh seems like it will be in the mix for the Wyack title. So the Titans are still fourth in the pecking order in the conference in most voters' minds, but they did improve to 2-0 in the American Southwest Conference with a 60-7 win at East Texas Baptist. Yes, I know, right? They won't play enough ASC opponents to qualify. I get it. It's a good start to the season nonetheless. Kobe Berghammer had a good afternoon on Saturday, and he and the other two Oshkosh passers found 11 different receivers on the day. Oshkosh will probably welcome the bye week this week as they get ready for Whitewater on September 30th. I know we did a mailbag earlier. We got one more. And we go to Brad Cronin, who's at SJU Johnny, who says, How will St. John's respond after the blowout loss to Whitewater when they face their toughest remaining team, Bethel, on Saturday? And, you know, Greg, usually I don't take questions that are very one-game specific like this, very one-game prediction specific. But I think we've seen a little bit of the Bethel track record and a little bit of the St. John's track record. And one of the things that pops into my mind immediately Is that the thing that Bethel is strong at is also the thing that St. John's is strong at, right? Bethel's defense has been really, really good so far here through the first couple weeks of the season. And the St. John's offense has been pretty much just as good.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think if you're St. John's, you can sort of rinse that game at Whitewater away, maybe play that off as that that's not us, not representative of who we are defensively however you want to look at it, that game does not count in MIAC play. It's so there's zero and zero in MIAC play. And I think that's where you start um, against Bethel. You know, Bethel is going to need to maybe find some, find some more things on offense. I know Bethel's defense has been really strong in their first two games, a shutout this week against Eau Claire limited work to just 16 points. But, Hard hard for me to see that St. John's is going to play in that 14 to 20 point range in this game. So, you know, Bethel working out some things, at quarterback and figure out how to work in uh, Joey Kidder, the other receivers and, you know, still still working on filling the David Ghibli size hole at running back for them. So uh, interesting game. And this is one I think we expect to see a repeat of in week 11. Quick out to Joey Kidder. Shovel pass to Joey Kidder, fly sweep to Joey Kidder
0: and around to Joey Kidder, right? I could see a lot of those things happening. Yeah, the part for St. John's that was a struggle, obviously, at Whitewater was defense, run defense, especially they struggled in pass defense for the first uh, three and a half quarters against Trinity as well. Horn could basically throw the ball to anybody at any time that he wanted to. Um, but, you know, Bethel is going to be a little limited on offense. Alex call getting the call at quarterback. Matt O'Claire for Bethel numerically looked pretty good. Uh, Aaron Ellingson getting the majority of the carries at running back. I think St. John's will respond just fine. That's a technical term. They'll have the home crowd behind them, which will be a good help as well. Weather should be much better than the last time St. John's had a home game. I think St. John's will respond. Okay. I think Bethel is going to bring everything they have and maybe a little bit more. I don't know that that will be enough against st john's brad thanks for the question people can ask their questions on x or whatever short messaging service happens to exist in any particular week by responding when we put out the bat signal looking ahead to next week to games to watch game to watch for me often is a game that i'm going to be at or in my case i'm planning to be at a game that i thought i might like to watch and in this case that is on friday night as Hardin-Simmons makes the long trip from Abilene, Texas to Beverly, Mass to take on Endicott. You know the story. We've talked about it before. Hardin-Simmons has basically been begging for Division 3 non-conference opponents to step up and play them. And in this case, Endicott is the one that took the challenge. Endicott in the Commonwealth Coast Conference. And Hardin-Simmons making that long trip. Hardin-Simmons coming from Abilene to go to Beverly, Mass. As the NCAA puts it, that's 1,968 miles for some Friday night lights. And I'm looking forward to that game. I just want to see up close what Harden Simmons has this year. I also think Endicott looking pretty good, right? Endicott was very close to knocking off Ithaca yet at home in week two. Ithaca came alive at the end to take care of things. feel like Endicott is uh, in good shape in the CCC. CCC with just six teams this year. And of course, no conference games have been played, but Endicott last year, a playoff team has to be considered the favorite at this point. And that is my game to watch for Saturday, except it's on Friday.
1: Yeah. Endicott still hunting for that first top 25 win. They've been close a couple of times. Um, Maybe, maybe the biggest game in CCC history. Ooh,
0: I thought you were going to say it Endicott history, and I was going to maybe chide you for saying maybe. But in the entire conference's history, the entire conference's history starts in 2017. I don't have a time to dig back through all of those schedules and results, but I bet,
1: I bet it's on the list. Good call. What's your game to watch, Pat? I'm going to be watching Kings at Delaware Valley this weekend. Kings comes into this game three and zero and having limited Albright to a very Del esque minus two passing yards in their 56 to zero win this weekend. Del Val won at Eastern on Saturday to extend their MAC winning streak to 45 games. If there's a changing of the guard coming in the MAC, it might just be Russell Minershaw and the Monarchs' time. A win on Saturday would not only give the Kings the inside track to the MAC championship, but would be the first 4 0 start in Kings program history. I had to go back and fact check that because, of course, there's a time
0: where, a time, one time, one singular time where Kings went to the playoffs. But indeed, that year, Kings started off two and two before winning the Mac and then getting within a windblown field goal of making it even deeper into the NCAA playoffs. I'll be honest with you, Greg. I know we don't go through the ins and outs of our top 25 ballot. I am one of the people voting for Kings. But I am not voting for Delaware Valley right now. That is my statement on this game. Also in week four, of course, you've got that game. We just mentioned number 19 Bethel at number eight, St. John's. 17th-ranked John Carroll is at Heidelberg. Number 20, Alma, travels to Wittenberg. That is how you pronounce Alma. TCNJ gets take two against FNM on Thursday night. Ohio Wesleyan is at DePauw. Center hosts Barry Trine is at Hanover. Eureka hosts St. Norbert. Gustavus Adolphus is at Augsburg. Dubuque hosts crosstown rival Loris. Bates is at Tufts, so am I. And Redlands travels to Chapman. It's on the spot time feel like on the spot needs a new drop and I'm putting myself on the spot by saying this on the podcast maybe we'll have to find something to replace the who wants to be a millionaire music that we are just basically blatantly ripping off here. That's open source, right? I'm sure it's open source. I will go up to my piano next week and record a brand new version of it. Greg I am going to ask you to pretend like you are at a national quarterfinal game, okay? You're sitting in the press box. And as often happens in the press box at Division Three playoff games, you are hearing scores being announced by the public address announcer of other games, right? Other games from other teams across the country that this PA announcer probably doesn't know how to pronounce. So I need you to pick winners for the other three games, but I need you to mispronounce them as if you were a public address announcer who has not been given any pronunciation code. All right. Call this Mispronunciation 101. Winners for the other three hypothetical quarterfinal games. If you think about it, some of the famous mispronunciations in the past have been on ESPN, on the broadcast release of the brackets. We all remember how Allegheny was mispronounced. <laughs> we all remember how Muhlenberg was mispronounced. Like, for example, just to give a hypothetical here, if we were looking at next week's schedule, you might have a game between Muhlenberg and Eurisnus. And Euriznis is an actual mispronunciation I have heard of Ursinus in a press box at a Division Three playoff game. Not Ursinus. Ursidus, understandable. This was Eurysnus.
1: I don't want to know what that means in Latin. All right, Pat. In our first hypothetical quarterfinal, Massachusetts Dartmouth defeats Worcester State 42 to 7.
0: Worcester State, Worcester Polytechnic Institute of the same family, also College of Worcester in Worcester, Ohio. It's mass Dartmouth over Worcester. Don't oh, make that Worcester State.
1: And our second quarterfinal pat. Hoosin defeats Anna Maria 28 to 21.
0: Hoosan make that Husin over Anna Maria. And our final quarterfinal pat
1: Shenandoah defeats Junita 35 to
0: 34. Well, first of all. I have heard Shenandoah, and I have heard Junida, and I've heard Juanita. And how, how did you pronounce them this time? Junita. You've got Shenandoah over Junita, excuse me, Juniata. All right, we'll see if any of those pronunciations
1: or results come true. All right, Pat, this week for You're On the Spot, I have collected four games. And I want you to order them from the largest margin of victory to the smallest. I'm not going to ask you to pick winners unless you feel like it. Largest margin of victory to the smallest. Here we go. We have Wisconsin Stevens Point at Albion. Kings at Delaware Valley. Trine at Hanover. And Redlands at Chapman. Wow. Man, this is tough because I look at this and I see
0: one double digit game and the others being very, very, very narrow. So largest margin of victory will be in the Stevens Point Albion game. not going to pick a winner there. I have some thoughts. I'm going to leave them to myself. Second largest will be trying at Hanover. For my third largest, I'm going to go with Kings at Delaware Valley. And then my narrowest margin of victory is going to be that Battle of the Ten redlands at chapman i got that right right battle of the 10 i know they have a smudge pot or some kind of something something right but i was pretty sure that i passed chapman on the 10 on my trip to redlands a few years ago
1: redlands and cal lutheran play for the smudge pot yeah okay
0: that's um, a really that's a big distance i've learned
1: yeah that's the long that's the long trip in the sky Uh redlands at chapman i mean you could 10 10 is fine maybe 57 depending on depending on how you want to do it, but 10 is fine.
0: As you know, and maybe not too many other people because it was midweek, I was out in SoCal last week, out in Calou country, out in Ventura County, and one of my takeaways from this trip was it seems like a good amount of traffic backup is just caused by when you're going uphill in Ventura County. It's like very slow going uphill, as if you were stuck behind a semi or something like that, And then once you get over the crest, things pick up. Checking last week's On the Spot, I asked Greg to pick the winners in ECFC games. That's the Eastern Collegiate Football Conference. And Greg found out that picking ECFC games is easier than it looks. So that conference went four and one in week one. They've got five teams. One and four in week two. And one and four again last week in week three. Meaning Greg, who picked University of New England, Husson, Dean, Castleton, and Mass Maritime, also only got one correct. Which one is that one, Greg? It was UNE. That's right. UNE goes down to Gallaudet on green turf and wins that game 31 to 10. Greg could have gone five and oh, Greg went one and four because
1: that stuff's difficult. Last week, I asked Pat to pick winners in three games that matched up teams that have peculiar similarities. Pat picked RPI to beat WPI for the transit trophy on Friday night. Saturday was not as good as Pat's picks of Defiance and Cal Lutheran lost to Kalamazoo and Pacific Lutheran, respectively. I lose defiantly as a Kingsman does. How do we do in quick hits? I ask you and not Logan. This week in top 25 upsets, well, there were none. And so points to Pat for calling that one out. A brief aside on most likely to be upset. The question asks, who is most likely, not who will be upset? Sometimes our panelists state pretty clearly that they think an upset is going to happen. Rare is the occasion that a top 25 team playing an unranked team is an obvious underdog. Ryan's pick of Ithaca, for example, actually had the smallest margin of victory of any of our most likely upset picks among teams we put on upset alert versus unranked opponents. So maybe Ryan was right after all. St. Vincent did indeed get their first points of the season, and they did win against Allegheny as picked by Greg, Logan, and Riley. Pat and Frank picked Chapman as a team to win without having officially scored yet this season, but the Panthers fell 24-17 to Whitworth on Saturday night. Streaks that were correctly picked to end, Greg picked Teal's 27-game home streak to end. Pat and Riley each correctly picked Bowden to end their 33-game road-losing streak, and Logan correctly picked Buffalo State to end their 26 game overall losing streak, which they did with a big win at Dean. And of Union, Maryville, and Grove City, all three won this weekend to move to 3-0. and Only Riley picked all three to win. Riley Zayas off to a fantastic start in quick hits this season. Riley does a great job.
0: I found that picking a streak to end was very difficult for me. It's like, This team has lost so many games in a row. Why am I going to pick them to win this week? I thought long and hard about Juniata. Turns out I would have been okay with that. As you said, I picked Bowden. Bowden ended last season strong, winning a couple of games at home, and then going to win at Hamilton. That seemed something that was realistic. And Maryville, which is not how you pronounce Maryville, obviously, and it's not what you said either. You said Maryville, which is pretty close. The Merville denizens would be super insistent about Merville. And I M-U-R-V-U-L. And I don't know if I can get behind it. Merville, which you said sounds really good to me. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 334, released on September 18th of 2023. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye out on our continuing coverage all week, all season. We are very thankful for the support of our monthly Patreon subscribers, and you can join them or learn more about it by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. And if you can't afford to support us financially, you can still help us out. You can tell a friend. You can tell a classmate fellow alum about the show post about it in the facebook group for parents of the football team we know those things exist i'm in some of those myself you can give us a five-star review in apple Podcasts if you're so inclined because that also helps other people find the show algorithm algorithm yada 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 you can reach us to talk more about division three football on x using the d3 fb hashtag i post from at d3 football greg is that wally wabash We have a message board devoted to division three sports. Did you know, join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. d3boards.com runs on a code base that is from 2005 and it was not built by NASA. So it is not necessarily built to survive 18 years out into cyberspace. We are keeping it running as well as we can. Thanks for your patience. The executive producer of Around the Nation podcast is Patrick Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Our theme music, this this theme music right here, is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. There's more of his tracks as well. You can find them at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Tom Perkovich for joining us today. Keith McMillan, he was the OG host of this podcast. He was the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and we are super grateful for that we're even more grateful that greg thomas has stepped into the seat now here not only as columnist but as co-host of this podcast thank you greg
1: always a pleasure love love bunkering in on saturdays watching all of the games you gotta have your head on a swivel pat between one and five ish
0: so many good ones, so many interesting ones we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about Johns Hopkins having its way with Salisbury or Trinity having its way with Birmingham Southern. It's because you can't talk about 116 games in one podcast. I would not be able to keep it to an hour and three minutes if we did that. I had this thought, Greg, about live podcasts at Mac and Bob's after Stag Bowl 50. I think that's something that's on the table. And then might we bring down DJ Mentos to actually spin some tracks for us? We could have Dave McHugh live announce us in. All sorts of things that could actually happen. Could we have Keith say, oh yeah, this is gonna be good. During the middle of the podcast, could we have Michael Ray guy come on and just say turbo 25 times? Uh- you can understand why. I bet a lot of those things could happen.
1: One, I don't think I've been introduced to go into a room since my wedding reception. <laughs> and two, the the thought of having DJ Mentos in the booth live as we cut the pod at 1130, 1230, is pretty exciting. Yeah, that's, I, I think... Uh, having a, having the the live music element would be very cool dj mentos obviously has been a part of the podcast uh longer than uh, almost anybody except for you and keith right
0: dj mentos is a close personal friend of keith as a guy who went to randolph macon i don't know where dj mentos calls home these days but i would have to uh think that that's an absolute possibility i know keith does not listen an hour into the podcast so we're gonna have to ask him separately if that's possible but that would be the sort of thing that we would need to do for stag bowl 50 stag bowl 50 is this epic eminent thing that's only going to happen once
1: power two live i think is really that would cap the entire stag bowl 50 experience off the way the way it deserves, I think. Thank you, Thank you so much everybody.